Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. It is Toni Morrison Day on The Stacks Book Club. Donnie Walton, author of The Final Revival of Opal and Neb, is back to help us break down Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon. The book is a coming-of-age odyssey of a milkman and his family. And today we talk about feminist novels, Toni Morrison's incredible ranging skills, and so much more. Yes, there are spoilers on this episode. Be sure to listen to the end of the episode to find out what our December book club pick will be. If you love The Stacks and want to be part of our exclusive community, The Stacks Pack, join us on Patreon. You get a whole bunch of perks like our virtual book club and bonus episodes. And from now until the end of November, anyone who joins gets The Stacks 2022 Reading Tracker. It is my most favorite thing. So sign up now, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join and support your favorite bookish podcast. I'd like to take a quick moment right now to shout out some of our newest members of the stacks pack, Megan Hartley, Alexia, Carmen Vela, Dominique Harrison, Tanya, Brittany, Elizabeth Schulenberg, and Lara Senechian. I could not make this show without you and the rest of the stacks pack. So in the spirit of Thanksgiving, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, now it's time for the Stacks Book Club conversation of Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison with the wonderful Donnie Walton. All right, everybody, it is officially the episode of the year. It is our Toni Morrison episode. Our dear friend and incredible author, Donnie Walton, is back. Donnie, welcome. Tracy, I'm excited to be back. Thank you. I'm so excited. And we're talking about Song of Solomon by the Toni Morrison. It is our fourth Toni Morrison book on the podcast. So people who are listening at home, we are going to spoil this book. We are not taking any feelings about spoilers into account. If you've not read it, you can pause or you can listen and be spoiled. But that's a you thing. That's not an us thing. Okay. (laughs) Um, We're going to start where we always start, Donnie, which is just kind of generally what did you think of the book? And also, if you want to give a little background to your relationship to the book, like if you've read it before or anything like that, this is the time. Sure. So first, I want to say thank you so much for having me on to talk about this novel. I feel blessed to have read this book mm-hmm. uh, at this time as a writer, as I'm kind of struggling with some things and trying to think about what's next. Um, it was hugely inspirational to me. So 
I am slowly working my way through the Toni Morrison body of work. This is the sixth novel of hers that I've read. And I'm not sure where I would put this in a ranking of like my favorites, but I will say that I loved it as a reader. I found it probably the most accessible of her books, Mm. weirdly. Like I immediately fell into it and I read it really quickly. And I also was in awe of the craft and the audacious style and just this book is wild like I feel like it was seven different books in one like it's a coming of age story it's gothic horror it's the odyssey it's mythology it's a a piece of it with Corinthians was like it's kind of romance like Mm -hmm. it was giving me everything and giving me life (laughs) Yeah, I I feel similarly to you. I am not a writer, and that is well documented in the fact that I can't and don't write. But I was really impressed with the writing, and I have I had never read a Toni Morrison novel until we did the first one on the show. So this is my fourth Toni Morrison novel, and the fourth one we've done on the show. And I feel like I don't know what my favorite one is. My my heart is telling me my favorite is still Sula, mm. but this to me feels like a better book than mm. Sula. Like, and I can separate those two things in my mind of like, what do I enjoy versus what is like, you know, craft better or like storytelling better. I have so many thoughts about why this book of her books is the one that people hold up as the best. And I really want to get into that. Yeah. But I think like generally I was really taken, as you said, about like the different kind of genres that this book encompasses. I remember very early on, I text an author friend and I was like, why am I getting Macbeth vibes from this book? (laughs) Like there was like this like feeling of like something bad is coming And like, that's how I feel whenever I read Macbeth that I'm like, I know what's going to happen. Like the way that everybody's talking to each other, like, I don't know, like I kept getting like these like really Shakespearean vibes, but Mm -hmm. then like, you know, a hundred pages later, that thought had totally left my mind. And after finishing the book, I was like, why did I think this was Macbeth? Like (laughs) what's going on? So I love that. Like, I don't know, range, right? That's like Toni Morrison has the range, which is feels like the understatement of the century. And I was I was thinking about you actually when I was reading uh, this book because I listen to the show a lot and I know that you love story, you love plot and Mm -hmm. so much happens. Yes. In this book. I mean, Toni Morrison, the way that she's able to, you know, like at the beginning of the book, (laughs) she skips like, 15 years and one sentence. And it was like, mm-hmm. oh, we're doing that. Okay. Like <laughs> this book is like, it spans a lot and a lot happens. And it's just like chock-a-block. Yeah. Amazing. I, I mean, I think like I, I take notes as I read, which I'm sure, you know, people know. And I always go back after I finish to prepare for these interviews or like these conversations. And I look through my notes and I'm always like laugh because usually one of the first notes is basically the one thing that sticks with me. And for this book, it was like, she can write a scene. Like the scenes, the scenes in this book. Because I love plot, but what I actually think I mean when I say that I love plot is that I love really juicy scenes. Mm. Like I just like things to happen when characters are together. So if you have to give me, you know, a hundred pages of like 
thinking, that's fine if you can pay it off with things happening. And she she was giving scene after Ooh. scene. After, like a friend of mine was like, let me know when you get to that scene. And then I replied with three scenes that I had not gotten to the one that he was talking about. But I replied with three scenes and I was like, it's got to be this one. It's got to be it's got to be the licking of the fingers of the dad. And he was like, no, but that's a good one. I was like, it's got to be. He's like, no. I was like, I don't know. And the scene that that he was talking about was the seven days scene oh, like yes. where it all comes unravels, mm-hmm. you know, and like that's an incredible scene. But to have a book where someone says, oh, that scene. And then for me to get it wrong three times before I, I got it, like, ugh, I mean, my that, brain, ugh. my brain is exploding with like all the different scenes from this book yeah. that are sticking out to me. I'm thinking about Cersei as a the very ancient woman with the Ooh. dogs in the house, you know, and it's yes. like, wait, is this a vision he's having or is this actually happening? You know, Wait, she was really alive, right? Yes, she was. Okay. That's what I thought. But then I was trying to do the math and I was like, no, it would, it would hold. She would have been like somewhere between like 90 and a hundred, but it would work. It could work. Yeah. And the thing that I've learned, I think in reading Toni Morrison is that she means what she says and she says what she means. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. The wild things that happen, they're really actually happening. It's nobody's Mm -hmm. fever dream. It's not like a vision. Mm. And so that made this book, I think, easier for me to read going in and understanding that, that what she says is happening is actually happening. And there's nothing like I just need to fall into it and trust, trust that narrative voice. That's such a good point. So that is what my acting teacher, when I studied Shakespeare for a year in college, that's what he would always say is that Shakespeare always writes, his characters say what they're thinking. And if they're lying, they say that they're lying, right? Like they do an aside, like Iago does an aside to the audience and is like, I'm going to lie to Othello and I'm going to fuck up his life. And like, that's so right that Toni Morrison is like, the drama is the thing. So I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to hide things. If it happens, and I say that it happens, it's happening. Yes. And if I say that it's a dream, it's a dream. But otherwise, it's real. And that's yeah. such a, and like that's what makes the stakes so high and like it's so juicy is that there's no doubt as a reader that all of this crazy, magnificent, spectacular, over the top, sick, twisted, whatever stuff is happening to these characters and then they're responding to it. And the brilliant thing too is even in the moments where you might be a little confused. Don't worry. She's got Queen you. Tony got you. She's going to clear up that mystery mm-hmm. soon. Like mm-hmm. there's nothing dangling and you just have to trust her that she's going to let you know exactly what's going on. So at yeah. the beginning, there was something mention of like the father's fingers or something like that. And I was mm-hmm. like, what? What's going on? Did I miss something? And then mm-hmm. it was cleared up in the next chapter. And it was like, oh, you know, and again, it's just like she's got you. Trust her. You're gonna yeah, but I feel like what's hard for me as a reader and why I can't always trust her or like I forget when I get back to her text is like so many authors are not Toni Morrison. They can't do it. They don't do it. They edit it out. It gets confusing. And so as a reader, it's like I'm conditioned to think that my authors are not geniuses because unfortunately not everyone is like obviously everyone's not Toni Morrison. But so when you get back to Toni Morrison text, it's like, oh, I forgot what being taken care of feels like. Yes. 
And like not in like a way where it's like, I'm going to explain every little thing, but I'm going to leave you these ideas to think about and then I'm going to change how you can think about them or I'm going to like give them more depth or a different perspective and like just the stuff with the fingers and the father and the incest. And then when the mom comes in and like clears it up when they're at the cemetery and you're like, well, now I don't because of course you're all in with the dad in the beginning. You're like, oh, the mom is you know, Ruth is disgusting and she has a problem and it's yeah. gross. And right. then by the time she gets a chance to defend herself, they're like, right, well, your dad wa- or your husband was an asshole and he didn't care about you and wouldn't touch you. And the only man that ever treated you like a human was your dad. And so, and you loved his fingers and his hands because he was a healer. And like, I get it. I'm still not all on board, but like I'm yeah. getting per- I'm getting perspectives here. Yeah, and you know I love a multiple perspective. Like yes, I, I love- know you do. <laughs> so I love those moments of you know in part two when Milkman is sort of on his odyssey, his quest to figure out you know what's going on with his family, who they were, and. You see him in, it's either a barber shop or like a regular shop, I can't remember. And you see him from the perspective of these kind of country mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, who the fuck are you? Like, how? Yeah, when he goes into order the soda you? or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was such a great moment, or even the moment where, um, Magdalena, his sister, is like, she just like reads him for Phil's. <laughs> okay, we have to get into and, that. Yeah. So okay, we're going to we're going to save that because that is like, I think, one of the most juicy things to talk about. But I want to preface I want to dive into a little bit about the great American novel, because I have heard tell that this is the great American novel from a lot of people. I know that Layla Lalami had written for the L.A. Times about why this was the great American novel. They did like a whole series where different authors pick their book and that was the book that they picked. But one of the things that. I thought about a lot was what makes this novel greater than say beloved, which I think is the other one that people would say is her great. And I wonder if because this book centers maleness, even though it's deeply feminist, I wonder if that is how this book became the one that became the one. Do you know what I mean? Like if it was Mm. because male readers who are the critics, who were the critics at the time, who were the voices at the time could read this text and be like, oh, I can see myself in that. And Mm. that she in some ways is awarded for her work because it is meeting men in a place, even though, you know, there's an argument. I mean, I'm not saying this novel isn't great and doesn't deserve that, but I wonder if, if that has something to do with it. I think it could. You know, I think, you know, we have a novel that's primarily through the lens of Milkman, but we also get a whole other cast of characters. And in that sense, in the sense that it spans a longer period of time, I think, than, well, does it? Does it span a longer period of time than Beloved? I don't Uh, know. Beloved spans a long period of time. It does. I forget that. Yeah. Um, I watched an interview with Toni Morrison uh, before we hopped on this call and uh, she was asked, you know, about writing from the male perspective. And she said she felt like she couldn't have written this book any other way because Mm -hmm. the themes that she was exploring in terms of like flight and freedom and all of these things she felt like that required a male perspective. She had Mm -hmm. written women characters in her previous works. And 
you know, the settings were very kind of like either boxed in or very domestic. But writing from the male point of view in this one allowed her to sort of like have a bigger and broader canvas, she felt, which I thought was was interesting. I do think it's interesting. And like what I the reason that I think that this could be her best I don't know. It's not, again, not my favorite, but I think her best is because while she has written this whole book about men, centering men, the women in the book lend the book so much of the lens in which we mm. see the men. And so like, mm-hmm. I do think not only is it her her male novel, but is also her feminist novel, right? Like the scene with Lena to Milkman. I mean, the character of Pilot, period. Oh, Pilot char- is everything. Is everything, right? And like, the fact that she has Toni Morrison all of us, right? Like she's like, I'm going to give you this man novel, but also I'm not giving you a story about a boy. I'm giving you a story about a boy who is completely consumed by the women in his life and they are consumed with him and they see him in a way that no one else does and that he can't see himself. And like, so for me, that part of it is why I think that it's great. But I wonder if the reason that others before this time lifted it up so quickly and so easily Mm. was because it was a bunch of white men who were the tastemakers and they were like, oh, this is a good story about a man like finding his place and they couldn't understand. I don't know. I just so many men who read this book, it's their favorite Toni Morrison. And maybe it's just because, you know, men are men and and they (laughs) want to be yeah the center. I don't know. But I do think it's interesting that very few men that I've ever spoken to have said any other book besides Song of Solomon is their favorite Toni Morrison. Well, I, you know, I would not be surprised if that were the case at all, because reading criticism from the time that her novels were published, there is some really infuriating shit in those reviews. (laughs) You know, Um, there was one about this book that was like, oh, you know, she's she's sort of transcended writing about like race in this way. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was like super fucking insulting. Right. And so um, the fact that they might have liked this book because it is told by a male and told with that certain privilege and perspective, I can totally see it. Yeah. I mean, it's also like the woman who interviewed her who was like, when are you going to write about white things? And she was like, you don't understand how profoundly Uh, racist that is. But it's sort of that same thing as like she wrote a few books about because this is her third novel in chronological order. So she wrote The Bluest Eye and then she wrote Sula, which are both like deeply about women and friendship and bonds between women. And then this book is totally different. And all of a sudden now she's a star, right? Like the New York Times review was like, this novel sets her apart. She's finally writing real shit. And you're like, oh, (laughs) right. Go off. Right. So I don't know. That was just one of the things because I kept when I told people that we were doing the book, I kept getting men being like, oh, my favorite Toni Morrison. And I was like, oh, there's something there's something there. And I know her other books later down the road, there are books where she deals with male protagonists again. But I do find it interesting that so many men, this is the one that like sticks out to them. That is so interesting. Okay. I want to talk about something surprising for me, which is characters. Again, I love a plot. But if you can write a great character, I mean, I mean, look, you know this, your book is full of this plot and character. If it's a good book, it can't be separate. Right. It's impossible. And I feel like she is the queen for so many reasons, but also because she has full humans that she writes like in a sentence. She'll give you one sentence about someone and you're like, yeah, I know who that is. You and you will never forget that character. Yeah. No matter how many characters she has in the book, 
you're always able to keep them straight because not only is she specific in the way that she writes them, but the things that she writes about them are very peculiar, (laughs) very memorable. It's like she marks them in certain ways. And it's never like, it's never superficial. Like it always, I feel like has deeper meaning, you know? And so the fact that Pilot has no navel, the earring that she wears, like these things on the surface are superficial, but they say so much about her character and her legacy and who she is and where she's from. What do you think the no navel thing means? I think it has to do with, um, it's a statement on her complete independence Mm. and her sort of not being able to count on or depend on, on really anyone but herself, you know, to the extent where she doesn't even have that very necessary cord between her and her mother. Like she comes into the world, sort of this independent outsider. And again, I love an outsider. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I just found it to be fascinating. And while the book is a lot, you know, there's a lot of sort of mythological work being done here around flight and things like that. But she's the character who is, she has her own version of flight, you know, kind of, we see in part two, we get a bit of her story kind of going from this place to that place and, and trying to find some place to be. Yeah. What do you think? You know, this is where I'm a weak reader. I have to be honest. Part of the reason I don't love fiction is I'm not very good at like the symbolism stuff. It's just never really, it's never been interesting to me. And I know for a lot of people, like that's what it's about. And for me, I just am like, oh, this person doesn't have a belly button. Like they are different. You know, like I don't, I always have a hard time figuring it out. So that being said, I think that you're right that it has something to do with like independence and also has something to do with like being an outsider and like being ostracized for that thing, right? right? I mean, and that's not really like subtext. That's in the text, certainly. Like we hear about the different lovers that she has that when they find out, they kick her out. And I think like, because I think then when we see the way that she's so attached to Milkman and like the way that she's so attached to her, her daughter and her granddaughter, that like there is something about the family tie that, Mm-hmm. is important to her. Yeah, even that's right. She, she doesn't have it, but it is, it's like the only thing that matters, which is why she still is close with her brother, even though he's sort of been not very kind to oh, her. Terrible. But like even Macon dead the second, junior, whatever, I don't, the second, mm-hmm. even he gets more and more sympathetic as the book goes oh, on. Oh, yes. Like, isn't that incredible? Because when the book starts, you're like, fuck that guy. I know exactly who he is. He hates black people. He hates poor people. He hates poor people. He hates being black. He just wants to marry the lightest skinned black woman he can find, make all the money, own everybody and be disgusted by the drunks and the poors and the revolutionaries and like yuck. And by the end of the novel, I was like, wow, I feel so sorry for him. Like I felt very moved by him. And there was that again, talking about scenes there was that beautiful um, scene where Milkman is among all those men who knew his father mm-hmm. um, when he was young and, and knew his grandfather and them being so proud 
of mm-hmm. Macon Dead Jr. and what he had made of himself and them sort of laughing and slapping their knee like, you know, good yeah. old Macon, like he did it. And it's it completely changes your your opinion of right. him in that right. moment. Isn't that, I mean, I don't know, I don't know your family situation at all. So you can tell me if this is not appropriate or anything, but my dad was an old, was older. He was born in 1935 and he was from the South, but they moved to, he moved to California. And whenever he would be with his friends and they would talk about things and like how, how funny my dad was or like how great he was in this moment or whatever, whatever that was, it's like, you get to see your parents in this different way, like through this different lens that like when my dad passed away, like around the time of his funeral, when everyone was coming over, you know, and like hearing the stories and like seeing the way that they loved each other, my dad and his friends and, and, and like the loss between them and all of that, it just felt so, that scene felt so real to me in that exact way of like, you're finally getting to see your parent as something more than you ever thought that they were or could have been. And like, it, it was very moving to me. Yeah, super emotional. I mean, I have a similar story of, you know, I was lucky enough to have all of my grandparents surviving until into my adulthood. But when mm-hmm. I lost my paternal grandparents, you know, I love them so much. And they were funny because they would bicker all the time, <laughs> like all the time they would like be arguing about something. But um I went to visit my dad once and he showed me these love letters of them Mm. between them um, when they were separated. My grandfather was stationed in Seattle and she was in Augusta pregnant with their first child. And I sobbed reading those letters because it was like they had an epic love story. They had such a grand, beautiful romance. And Mm -hmm. um, it was a light in which I had never, ever recognize them before and to understand that about people from whom you descend is Mm -hmm. a very beautiful thing a very proud thing and it's a freeing thing and I think that's what happens with Milkman when he kind of is finally understanding putting the pieces together of who his family is there's a pride and there's a freedom there's an exhilaration and he wants to share it with everyone It, it was a very beautiful thing yeah. Ugh. And I just love that she does that for both Milkman and for Macon's character, right? Like she gives him this redemptive arc to the reader. And like he still maybe is like not the greatest guy, but maybe he's not the worst guy. And like maybe he was kind of cool and, you know, shit happens and he's working on his own stuff and like whatever. Absolutely. But. Yeah. He's suddenly more round and he's yeah. suddenly there are things to admire about everything that he overcame. Uh, Uh, Yeah. yeah. On the flip of that, did you feel like throughout the book that Milkman became more or less sympathetic for you? Uh, (laughs) I know. Um, he, He started off sympathetic, got less sympathetic by the point where he was basically like, treating Hagar like trash. Mm -hmm. And then a little, it was sort of like peaks and valleys for me in terms of the sympathy. By the end, I was sort of liking him again, but there were moments where I was really, again, like saying, how dare you to him Mm -hmm. as a character? And especially when it came to Pilot and Mm -hmm. 
you know, again, another scene where she goes to basically save him in a guitar at the police station. Mm-hmm. And she does what she has to do. And he's like, oh, disgusting. Oh, gross. You know, and doesn't realize what it is that she's doing for him. And in those and in the same thing, the way he sort of takes Hagar's love for granted, like not saying that he like they should have been together or anything like that, but the way that he was with her and that whole family unit, you know, um, the fact that him and Guitar go in an attempt to rob them. Like he's just there are moments where I really disliked the character. And yet the story was so compelling that I was definitely along for that ride. Yeah, I I feel like Milkman is by far my least favorite or interesting character in the book. Yeah. Like I was the least interested in him in basically every scene. Like for me, I just was like, okay. Like (laughs) he just was sort of a dud to me. And like, not that he doesn't have depth or like development, but it was always, I was always more interested in what the people in the room were going to do with him than I ever was in him. And like, I think that this is my, this might be a controversial, but I was not super tied up in the Hagar stuff, except for there's the one scene, you know, where she goes out and she buys all the nice things and she like falls in the mud and then she comes home and then she like sees herself and then she doesn't like, and then she realizes that she is a mess and then she dies. The seeing of herself as the mess was like very emotional for me, Mm. but the rest, like I was the least interested in her because her story was the most tied up in Milkman, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like for me, Milkman was just, I, I just wasn't, I don't know. He just was the least interesting to me. Yeah. And I think, I don't know. I wonder if that was by design in a way, because he is sort of like this cipher moving through these different worlds Mm -hmm. and you don't always know what he's going through, but there are a lot of very colorful characters around him and he's, it's like, he's just trying to like figure something out and you're not always sure what that thing is. But yeah, I, I would agree that like, I think, You know, if I'm thinking of all the characters, he's by far, you're right. He's kind of the least interesting. And it's just for me. Yeah. All (laughs) the things that he's discovering along the way, that's what's interesting. And honestly, I could have, I could have read a whole other novel about Pilot's family Mm -hmm. unit, Pilot Mm -hmm. and Reba Mm -hmm. and Hagar, like that whole thing. I wanted to know more about like the winemaking and like all of those things. A thousand percent. I'm surprised there isn't like a book that is someone else's attempt at like writing them. You know, like how there's like that book Scarlet that's like about Scarlett O'Hara after like Margaret Mitchell's book. Okay. Speaking of favorites or least favorites, who was your favorite character? Oh, Pilot pilot she just leapt off the page for me that scene where she's got the knife to the guy's (laughs) throat um for having taken advantage of reba i just thought that she was a beautiful character and she was an adventurous character and a very kind and very invested in her family and kind to Ruth when nobody else was has been kind to Ruth, you know. Yeah. Um, so I I loved her and I loved all those things that marked her 
those weird mm. things. Although I had difficulty picturing the earring. Did you? I did too. Yeah, I, I had trouble seeing what that looked like because it was a box that was hanging from her ear. Yeah, well, and it had her not name in it. But I was, it was a piece of paper with her name. Right. In it. Yeah. So I was like on a very unimaginative, unimaginative, you know, I had a little dangling earring with a small box and a <laughs> piece of paper, like a little yeah. rectangle. Like I didn't yeah. come up with something. It wasn't like elaborate to me at all. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would love if somebody sketched it. Like I would love to Just see that. Some, <laughs> please send us your drawings. Yes. This is now an art submission podcast. Thank you. <laughs> we will, we will pick our winner. Um, I, yeah, for me, like I said, Milkman was my least, I was least interested in Milkman, which is so weird because he is clearly the center of the story, but it's also sort of great. But I think my favorite was a guitar. Yeah. I loved him. Yeah. I loved him. I love, I mean, so here's a funny story. So a friend of mine, Reggie, who loves this book and is a big reader and he was on Bookstagram and he's been pushing me to read this forever. Um, and he used to always talk about it as the great, you know, anti-hero novel. So I'm reading the book and the whole time I'm thinking that I'm supposed to understand that Milkman is the anti-hero because mm. he is the lead of the of the book. And to me, like when I think anti-hero, I think that the lead has to be unlikable, right? Like a like a bad protagonist or whatever, an antagonist in the lead role. So like an Iago, like I mentioned, something like that. So I'm like, the whole time I'm reading the book, I'm like, I don't know if he's a great anti-hero. Like, he seems kind of like just the hero. Like, yeah, right. And then I finally reach out to Reggie at the end and he's like, no, you idiot. It was a guitar. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I didn't feel like he, I don't think that he's an anti-hero either. He did, he was a hero to me as well. Mm. <laughs> like, I read him like, and I think maybe that's the context of now, but I read him very admirably and I was very like, pro guitar I don't I I mean I know that in the end like he's trying to kill Milkman but you know I don't disagree with that either <laughs> yeah <laughs> guitar is a great character and the whole seven days story uh. was so that whole the few pages of dialogue where he's sort of telling Milkman about the seven days so gripping and so, so gripping. like immediately for me also that was the part where I was like oh my god this novel is not going to end in a good place mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. what's mm -hmm. going to happen it was so suspenseful and so provocative mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. provocative and I sort of wonder I would love to go back um, and look at some of that old criticism of Song of Solomon when it came out to see what people made of that Right. Um, because it is very, you know, yeah, very political, pretty radical, um, but fascinating. And I do feel like, like when you say anti-hero, I immediately think of like television shows. Yeah. That, like Breaking you know, Bad. Yeah. And I can, I yeah. can absolutely see like a series about the seven days. <laughs> yes. A series about guitar. I could see that as an anti-hero journey. Yeah. I love guitar. I loved that scene. I also loved the ways in which guitar challenged Milkman because I think that they were so similar, mm. you know, and like I think that it almost becomes like two sides of a coin arguing with each other. And like, yes, they're very different and they have these different upbringings. And I feel like 
it just felt like the, I think it was like maybe a metaphor for the black community in a sense of like you have black folks that think like we need to work within the system. We need to right. do this and that like the milkman side. Then you have the other side that is the guitar side that's like, fuck this. They're killing us. They don't right. care about us. Why do we care about them? But also even more like the scene before we get the explanation of the seven days where they're talking about Emmett Till. Mm. I I mean, that scene, I it stopped me dead in my tracks because I up until that point, I don't remember any reference that I recognized as real life. Yeah. Yeah. And so then when it's like, oh, did you hear about the boy who winked at the woman? And at first I'm like, oh, this kind of sounds like Emmett Till. And then you realize that it's, she's, actually she's actually really talking. writing about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. Like that for me was deaf. That was the moment in the book for me where I was like, oh, right. OK, like yeah. this is not just a story like this is more. Not, I mean, not just a story, but you know what I'm saying? Like this is not. This is not make-believe. These are very real characters living in the actual world that I live in. Right. And that, to me, was really jarring in a good way. Yeah, super bold. Yeah, yeah, so Mm -hmm. bold. And then, like, as it unravels and, you know, we get the the church bombing later, it was like, oh, okay, so we're doing this. And, like, there was – okay, there's one part in the book – well, let me ask you it this way. Were there any scenes that weren't in the book – that you wish you, she would have written. Mm, ooh, I think I always loved being with the women a lot, and I mm-hmm. sort of wanted I wanted more. I was really into the Corinthian story, mm. and I wanted a little bit more with that. I mean, you learn by the end that she does um, she does stay with that the other guy who's in the Seven Days. I can't remember. Oh his yeah, name right I can't now. remember his name either. Yeah. <laughs> But it was so like fraught earlier and everything that I kind of like, I kind of like wanted a little bit more of that. Yeah. I, but other than that, like I felt very satisfied as the a whole. The only scene that stood out to me as like, I, I really would love to have read it is what Guitar did immediately after they were released from oh, the botched yeah. robbery. Right. That was the scene where like, I think Milkman kept like being like, I got to go find guitar. I got to go find guitar. And like we see him with, um, and then we can't remember his name, Corinthian's boyfriend. And like right. when he realizes Porter. that they're all. Yes. Porter. Yeah. Right, right, right. When they're all together. Like, and I think that happens shortly after the robbery. I want to know like what guitar was saying. Like, I want to know what kind of shit he was talking. I want to know like. I wanted to be with guitar a little more. I wanted to know sort of how he flipped fully on Milkman. Cause like he knew Milkman was like a little bitch for a while. Like he knew that, but like that was his friend and like he was going to be fine with it. And like his daddy's rich. He doesn't know better, but I feel like somewhere around the time of the botched robbery after they have the conversation and like basically Milkman admits to like kind of being disgusted by black people and like kind of believing in the boot, bootstraps politics of it i kind of want to know like where guitar goes who he talks to who he really is like fuck milkman i'm fucking tired of that guy like i just wanted that scene and like how he would explain it because i loved how he explained so much of like the racial politics of what was going on with those murders and and the seven days like i just more yeah that should surprise exactly zero people that the part that i wanted more of was the murderous cult (laughs) who was avenging racism like 
of course my favorite part of the novel. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Because, you know, one of the things that I really did enjoy about the earlier sections of the novel was sort of the the friendship and the warmth that mm-hmm. existed between mm-hmm. Milkman and Guitar. And I was kind of interested in how he just totally did not trust him, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't know if that was him becoming bonded in a different and deeper way with the other men in the seven days, or if Mm -hmm. it was thinking that, you know, milkman is just like his daddy or like, you know, what exactly it was. You're right. Yeah. I just uh, would have taken more. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, more Song of Solomon. I re- I just realized that I never did the like, here's what the book is about. But you know what? Fuck you. If you haven't read it and you don't know what it's about, like, I, not my job. My job is to talk about the book. I Sorry, I can't be bothered. <laughs> okay, one of the things I, I have like so many things I want to talk about. And then I'm, now I'm trying to go through my list of like, what do I absolutely have to talk about? We touched on this in the beginning, but I do want to ask you if you feel like Song of Solomon is a feminist novel. I do think that uh, it is. And I think there was there was one line that I took note of, and it's sort of this realization. And the realization comes from Milkman's perspective, but it's from the beginning, his mother and pilot had fought for his life and he had never so much as made either of them a cup of tea. Mm. And I said, yeah, motherfucker. <laughs> you don't like, 
I think that it was very aware of the sacrifices that women make and the boxes mm-hmm. they are in and the power that that men have. Mm. And I think there's that beautiful moment when Magdalena called Lena, as we <laughs> referred to earlier, is sort of, you know, telling Milkman exactly about himself. Mm-hmm. And I thought for a character who is so minor in the earlier sections of the book, like I can't really remember much about her. It's like her and Corinthians are always kind of paired together in the earlier parts of the book. But then there's that moment where they kind of like, they, they pop out in really passionate and crucial ways mm-hmm. to the text and to, to sort of understanding um, Milkman a little bit more from this outside perspective. But yeah, I do think it's, it's a feminist text in, in that way. Um, sort of recognizing the power imbalances, understanding that, you know, it's really kind of fucked up and really <laughs> how the women were mus- misunderstood and um, kind of punished in a way emotionally mm-hmm. for the things that they felt or for their desire. So, yeah. What yeah. about, what do you think? I think so. I mean, I think we sort of talked about this, about like the maleness of the novel. And I think that, as I said, Milkman is the least interesting person in the book for me. And I think that all of that is part of it, that like she's written this book about men and about like paternal lineage. And yet still the women are the ones that do everything. Like there is no Milkman without Ruth and Pilot coming together to like take action to make this thing happen. I think like the way in which obvious, I think like the obvious stuff that's like, this is feminist is like Pilot and Reba and Hagar, like having their own business and living on their own and like going off and thriving. And like, you know, all of that seems very obvious, but I also think like Hagar dying of love for Milkman is weirdly feminist to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like, I think that obviously Lena's speech to Milkman where she, you know, reads him his rights again, like deeply, obviously feminist stuff. And I think like Milkman being so, I don't, I don't even know the right word, being so milquetoast, if you will, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. being, being so like malleable at the hands of the women in his life, like there's another version of that scene where Lena tells Milkman about himself and Milkman says, no, you listen here, sister, and goes off on her, right? Like, and instead he takes it in and is like, wow, I I don't even think we get his opinion on it. Like, it's just like, yeah. it's, his opinion isn't important. It's not important what he says. It's important that she gets to say it. And I feel like those types of like, that that type of like construct for these scenes is what, like we don't ever really hear too much about what Macon thinks of the fact that he was sort of duped into having a baby besides that he was not happy about it. But we get to hear so much about how important it was to the women. And so I think that that is what makes it a feminist novel that even though our protagonist and our alleged anti-hero and our villain in Macon are all the male characters, it's the women characters that really are making everything happen. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, this is a book that when I reached the end, like I just wanted to go back to that beginning scene and yeah. and read it again with all I did. the context. I did. You did. You have to talk about what that was like, but to have that context, to see all the, the women are so important to that opening scene. Yeah. You have the women are, singing, yeah. you have the girls dropping the rose petals, you have Ruth going into labor. Um the women are everything in that scene. Yeah. Well, but you know what else yeah. is in that scene for me that stuck out and stuck out with me also in Sula is so we talked about plot scenes, we talked about character development, but also place is like such a Toni Morrison thing. And like what stuck out to me was the not doctor street of it all. Yeah. Because <laughs> that also like that that humor, which it's funny, but it's also like specifically black funny. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like it is so black to have a place that yeah. is that's named after a person and then they tell you, no, you can't call it Dr. Street. And they're like, fine, it's not Dr. Street. <laughs> and like that reminded me so much of the bottom in Sula where it's like, yeah, black people were lied to. They were told, oh, you're at the bot. Like you're like, this is the best place, but it was really the worst place. And they called it the bottom, but it was the top of the hill. Mm-hmm. And like that humor too. And like, the way that she creates these places, that's what stuck out to me on my reread. Even more than the women was like this place that is fiction that has the history of a real place. Because only a real place has like jokes like that, you know, like oh, yeah. jokes about like the location. And I'm sure like most black folks who are listening can think of a few places in their city or their town that have like specifically black nicknames that all the black people use and like the white people don't or like the non-black people don't. And I just love that because it feels so real. And she's given this like deeply personal detail to a fictionalized place. And like she didn't have to. Yeah. Like they could have just been on Main Street or whatever. Right. It makes it feel so rich and lived in. And like there's generations of black folks here. And yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah. I love it. I love that too. Okay. I want to talk a little bit. So we've really been focusing on the first half of the novel, which is sort of the like coming of age story part of it. And then there's this split and there's part two. And of course, when there's ever a part two, I always take the note in the moment. Why is the book split here? And about five pages into part two, I was like, oh, because this is a completely different book. Like it was so Yes, I was like, this is so clear to me. What did you think of the Odyssey part of all of it? the the mythology of the flying Africans, like the whole like back half of the book and how it unraveled. How was that for you? So I, if I were going to, which is impossible, I can't read a book for the first time again. <laughs> but um, when I reread this book, which I will do at some point, I would actually take a piece of paper and sort of do like a family tree mm. and sort of like, because I did find it, um, I loved it. I loved kind of the mythology part of it. I loved the indigenous and sort of African like things that were coming into the text. But I just kind of tracing the lineage and tracing the towns he was in. Mm -hmm. I know that it was all there and it all makes sense, but it was hard to hold in my head altogether at once. Yeah, I got a little confused with the names of everybody as well. I loved having Milkman out of his home. Yeah. Like I loved watching Milkman like trying to like figure it out. I was definitely confused a little bit. I think also part of it is because Solomon 
and then like Soliman or whatever the name of the right. town was, was like a yeah. little confusing to me. And like, I, I definitely had family tree issues, but I liked that we like got to go. It was like the reverse migration story, right? Like going back to the South and like going back to find their family. And I definitely have like fantasies about that myself, like going back and I tried to go back and like find my family tree and whatever, but like, you know, unfortunately the story of black Americans is it's a lot harder than you might think. But so I definitely had like fantasies about Milkman being able to do that. And I text a friend when I finish the book and, and I'm sure people will have their own opinions about this. So I'm curious what you think, but I said, I feel like that was sort of a happy ending. And, and apparently I guess that's not, no one else feels that way. For me, I felt like it was a hopeful ending that like they were able to find their family and like have some sense of where they came from and who they were and yeah. who the first Macon dead was and that he was Jacob and that, 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 that there was a wife and who she was and how the name like all of that stuff to me. Solomon was a rebel and he like flew in the face of slavery and like U.S. confines and and that, even though he left his family, I get it. Don't leave your family if you, you know, can help it. But also, I just felt very hopeful at the end of the book. Like, Black people, we can fly. We can create a new future. We can create our new names, our new identities. We can have a farm. We can have a family. Like, our generations can thrive. Like, all of that to me is how I read the end of the book. And I know Pilot dies, and that's sad. And maybe, maybe Milkman dies too, and that's less sad to me. But the end, I don't know. It, it was a happy ending for me. I, I don't know how you feel about that. I think the tone was almost one of wonder. Yeah, yes, um, yes, yes, yes. It was the wonder he had understanding who his people were and where they came from. But that very last paragraph, that very last sentence, for now he knew what Shalimar knew. If you surrender to the air, you could ride it with that ride italicized. And there's video somewhere of Toni Morrison reading these last pages and she reads her face is illuminated. And there's mm. such a, it's definitely like, it's almost as if he's kind of ready. Mm. He knows the truth. The scales have fallen from his eyes. He has a deeper understanding and he just sort of jumps into the air and that's where we end. So you know, I don't know, happy, it's difficult to say, but I do think there's a sense of wonder there mm -hmm. and a sense of um, freedom in a way. Yeah, which is what, you know, she says she's writing to in this book. She's writing about freedom. And so I definitely feel like that was there. I, as we mentioned before, sort of when the whole stuff with the seven days came out, I didn't think that the book would end in a way that felt at all like positive. It, and yeah. like, you know, I know that Hagar dies. I know that Pilot dies. Like, I know that it's kind of a tragedy, but it doesn't yeah. end tragically. You know, it ends mm -hmm. on this note of sort of like things will continue. There is a future, right. which is not you know, the bleak ending of Macbeth, like I mentioned before, like it is not Macbeth, like it is not Shakespeare. It's something different and, and 
more complicated and more interesting. And for me, considerably more hopeful. Do you yeah. have a sense of what happens? Is Does does guitar shoot Milkman? Does Milkman die? Does Milkman shoot guitar? Like, what is the, what is your vision? I just imagine that, um, I don't know. I was just picturing Milkman kind of jumping to his death. Mm. Is is what I imagined. I don't think guitar shoots him. I think he's trying to shoot him. Right. He, right. he hits him. But something you just said, you know, the sense that things are going to continue and go on. One of the things that I thought was so interesting about this book is basically this line of family is dying. They don't have children. Mm-mm. Like none of them, wow. you know, like yeah. the, the women are first Corinthians and Magdalena called Lena are still, they're in their forties and still living at home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, milkman is how old is he when the book ends? 30 something, 30 something. Yeah. Um, and so like, I just, I, I don't know. And Hagar's dead. And Hagar's dead. And I don't think, you know, Reba's going to have any more right. <laughs> children. Right. So what do you make of that, if anything? I hadn't thought about it, but now my hopeful ending feels considerably more I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so Thank- sorry. Thanks, Donnie. <laughs> literally airing the day before Thanksgiving. So much to be thankful for. Um, no, you're right. Well, that makes it actually considerably more bleak because then you think all of this is for naught, right? Like he goes back to find his family history and then he dies and there's no one to share it with. Or maybe it sort of gives the, it sort of gives a sense of completion, which yeah. in a way is its own kind of like, not happy per se, but just like, this is how this ends. Like, yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Sorry, that was just something that was occurring to me as no. we were talking about it. I love it. it. I love it. Um, I do love that. It's true. There's no offspring from the generation, that generation. And so that also means it's the end of not doctor, doctor's family. Right. Yeah. Because those are, because Ruth was the only child, right? Right. Ruth was an only child, I believe. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What uh, a bummer. Heavy. Really, now I don't know how to end this episode. I feel like I'm just <laughs> trying to end on a hopeful note. Um Yeah. Well, I, had, I did have one thing I wanted to okay. mention about Go guitar. Ahead. One of my favorite things about him, actually, in thinking about going back and reading the beginning after you read the ending, is to see him as a little boy mm. and how he corrects the nurse's spelling of oh, yeah. the word. Do you remember that? I don't. I Let me go look. And it's like, in that moment, there's also a description of his eyes as like slashes of gold. Mm. And I was like, this is a character that is a character to remember. Oh, yes. Granny, she left um, out an S. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and a please. And a please. <laughs> says his grandmother. But I just love getting to know those characters again yeah. in a different time with all the knowledge that we accumulate throughout the book. How are you on the Bible? Are you good on the terrible. Bible? See, I'm, I'm ter- terrible. I'm Jewish. I don't know a lot of this stuff. I, I I tried to like look up more about the names in the book. Like, yeah, I know I know who Pilate is because you know can't see mm-hmm. Jesus Christ superstar without that. <laughs> um, but 
And I know who Ruth is, Old Testament, but I don't know what a Corinthian, I know what the first, I know that there's first and second Corinthians, but I don't know what a Corinthian is. And I'm assuming Magdalena is like, isn't that Mary? Mary. Mary. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wish I knew the Bible better because I would love to do like a whole thing on that, but I'm not not the person and I I guess you're not either. (laughs) I'm not, but you know, I, I think this this leads into like what I think is one of the brilliant things about Morrison. And it ties into what we were talking about earlier about Pilate's navel, not having a navel. For me, symbolism only works when it is also working at like a literal level Mm. where you don't, it doesn't have to have deeper Mm -hmm. meaning. And if Mm -hmm. it does, it's just something that's additional that Mm -hmm. is sort of enhancing of the text. But it works anyway. Mm-hmm. And I just love this family tradition of yes. just opening the Bible and sticking your finger in. And that is what you name your children. Yeah, I just loved it as like a family detail, I as love a it. piece of their legacy. And you don't have to know anything further. And I honestly, like I thought about kind of trying to research it a little bit before this, this yeah. episode, but I was like, uh... I don't yeah. know. <laughs> like, I'm kind of okay. Yeah. I was, you know? I've had the same thing of like, I want to look into this. And then I was like, I really don't have the range. Even if someone explained it to me, it's just not part of my knowledge base. But the yeah. same thing for like Song of Solomon. I guess the Song right. of Solomon in the Bible is like a love poem. Mm-hmm. And it's very much, I guess it is sort of that in the book, like the story, but it's not because it's about Solomon leaving or Shalimar, whatever you want to call him, leaving his wife and his family and that she's so sad and and he's, you know, transcended and she's in now in the like ravines crying. But right. I, I did think about like trying to figure it out more, but like you, I similarly was like, I don't, I don't know that it would make sense to me. I think that if you have that biblical background, it probably is really cool and interesting because Toni Morrison doesn't do anything that's not cool and interesting, but I right. would need someone to like actually teach me this stuff. And I don't know that I, yeah. We'll do that in this lifetime. <laughs> yeah, same. I think you have to have like some intrinsic knowledge, you know, it's sort of like calculus where everything yeah. is sort of built on like basic theorems and they just keep building on each other. Exactly. And if you don't like, you can't just like jump in. Yeah. Like, I feel like you I feel get, the same way. Yeah. yeah I feel like yeah. you got to get like Dante Stewart to come like teach a course on the names and song of Solomon. Cause I feel like he could definitely do it. He would know Dante. That's your invitation. If you're listening. Yeah. Um, okay. Before we go, the last thing that I, that I just want to talk about briefly, which we just kind of transitioned to anyways, is the title. And I would say the cover, but there's so many different editions and I don't think that the cover actually matters at this point, but I'm curious if you had thoughts about sort of the, the title of the book? Well, I think that it was another mystery that I knew that Toni Morrison was going to get to eventually. Mm-hmm. And she gets to it rather late mm-hmm. with the the children in the town singing the song. But I was fine with that, like, because I knew that I was going to get to that point. And mm-hmm. I, I knew, um, but I feel like there's something really epic about about it to call mm-hmm. it to, to have a book and say it's song a song um song of solomon i think it's beautiful mm-hmm. i wish that i knew more again biblically about right. all the implications of that um but yeah 
Yeah, I like the title too. It just made me remember the one thing that I did want to mention. I loved the twist of Make and Dead One, Jacob, telling Pilot, coming to Pilot and telling her to sing. And oh, her thinking yes. that he's saying to sing and she and he is yeah. saying the name of his wife, sing, 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 sing. And I just I loved that because that, too, feels like such a nod to black oral history. Right. Where it's like you yeah. have a grandparent or great grandparent or something and there's this story about them. And then you do a little bit of research and you realize that, like, that's legitimately not what happened <laughs> at all. But like that, the that the. the, the oral history that the legend of the family yeah. is so much better and and meaningful and like gave meaning to so many people's lives like pilot sings his her whole life right. because of this thing that she's misinterpreted and has passed on and she's told Hagar and she's told Reba and she's told Milkman and she's told everybody about how her father came to her and told her to sing to sing to sing and like ah i just it's beautiful it is like that these little misinterpretations of like oral history, family history can be the things that define you essentially. Yeah. She starts out the book singing. Yeah. And they become so special in a, in a, in a spun off way from right. the, you know, um, and part of the legacy. Yeah. And that, that twist also comes so late in the book and is so gratifying. And that it's like at one moment you're like, oh, it's like a take your breath away moment sort of. Yeah, I loved it it too. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you wanted to before we get out of here? Oh my gosh. Well, I loved finally, you know, when Toni Morrison passed away, of course, like we were all very devastated, all of us who read her and love her and, and take so much wisdom from her. And it was a moment where, you know, lots of people were posting quotes of hers. And I have to say it was a stunning moment when I saw the one quote, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. From Guitar, from your favorite character. Yes. yes. You want to fly? You got to give up the shit that weighs you down. Yes. And it was beautiful to see that in context. Yeah. There's a few quotes from this one. I can't remember all of them, but there were a few where I was like, oh, I know that. Right. That, that was really fun. I have to say, in the spirit of me, I wouldn't be me if I didn't do this. I hate to do it now after talking about this great quote. There was one part of the book that I just could not buy. Let's hear it. I just could not get to a place that made sense that the gold was the thing that could make Guitar hate Milkman. It just felt so forced and like Mm. obvious and like not a Toni Morrison choice. Like, Mm. Like it was like, oh, you're really upset about like some gold that you didn't even know about and like isn't even yours that you guys fucked up the robbery on and it's enough to make you follow. Like, I just, I like, it was the one piece of the book where I was like, I don't know, any writer could do this. Like, it just didn't feel like Toni Morrison to me. Well, I think it speaks to that piece that you wanted more information around about how the, the sort of separation between them really came to be because like we're to you know he wants the money to fund this operation right and i think it has something to do with like him thinking that you know milkman milkman is not down for this cause right and he is actually like fucking up our chance to do 
to get this retribution. And, but it's not really on the page. Like it requires you to kind of like, to kind of dream into that and what he, he might be thinking. But yeah. Yeah. I also, because they were so close and they did disagree about a lot of things and it was usually like, it was usually okay. Yeah. And so for this to be the thing, I, I get that. Yeah. I think maybe I just wanted, I just wanted that one scene so bad or like I wanted guitar to just fucking tell him just to say to him like you're nothing and like you stole you know like I don't know I just it was the only part of the book where I was like eh, I'm not obsessed right. um yeah. but that I mean everything else I loved I hate to go out on this note but you know here we are <laughs> I've done it I've done it anyways um Donnie this was so awesome thank you so, so much good. for talking Song of Solomon and being so great to discuss this book that has a million things to discuss in it oh thank you so much for inviting me to talk about this book it was again a blessing to read this book thank you yay and everyone else we will see you in the stacks thank you all for listening and thank you so much to Donnie Walton for being my guest today All right, here it is. The Stacks Book Club pick for December is my favorite book of the year, A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance by Hanif Abdurraqib. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, December 29th, and you can tune in next Wednesday to find out who our guest will be. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our editor is Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite. And our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 